Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Living Hope Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information about our church, please visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com. If you have a Bible or an app on your phone, we're going to be looking at 1 John here in just a minute. We're wrapping up a sermon series on 1 John, so we're going to be in the second half of chapter 5 and concluding some, some things in there. August 9, 2014. Uh, a young man by the name of Michael Brown has an altercation with a police officer. Michael is shot and passes away. Um, the the follow-up, the investigation on something like that takes time, and so it did take time. And there's uh, witnesses and testimonies and forensic evidence and all that kind of thing. And that process took a long time. But very quickly, before any of that was even close to concluding, within... I don't recall if it was within a few days or really within a few hours. One of Michael's friends um, gets in front of a TV camera and says Michael was unarmed. He, he, in fact, he put his hands in the air and he said, don't shoot. And then the police officer shot him execution style. Well, that testimony, that version of the story spread like wildfire. And there were riots, I mean, certainly all across the U.S., Um, international protests. Um, I mean, it just, it went global what happened following that. Um, Now, the the Department of Justice and their investigation, um, you know, they, when when they looked at everything, they said that that narrative did not happen. Um, They they started off with 22 witnesses. Eight of them eventually confessed to lying because some of them just wanted to be part of something big, and so they, you know, they came up with stuff, but by the time that they looked at the forensics evidence and witnesses and that kind of thing, they said, no, that, that narrative is untrue, that, that could not have happened. But by then, in many ways, it was really too late, because that testimony had already spread all around the world, and, almost, and really, in many ways, became, became a movement. Testimony is very powerful, and particularly if, you, if you're one of the first ones to get testimony out, right? Testimony is powerful. We, um, so Wednesday Night Live and Sunday School are kicking off, and so we reviewed our child protection policy with our youth workers. Now, a, a good child protection policy actually kind of has two um, major components to it. Obviously, part of it is protection for the child, and so what kind of culture and policies and rules and structures do you have in place to protect the child? But the other half, really, I, I believe a good protection policy, also has procedures in place to protect your volunteers from false accusation that can arrive now or can actually arrive you know, many years down the road. And so what kind of policies do you have in place to protect your volunteers? And so when it comes to protecting your volunteers, really the critical thing is that you need testimony from someone who can stand up in a court of law and say that they both saw and heard what had happened and that those actions and that those words were appropriate. And if you lack one of those, if they saw it but didn't hear it or they heard it but didn't see it, or they're simply, you know, too young to be admitted into court, if you're lacking one of those, then you lack a good testimony to protect the, the, the reputation of, of your volunteers. 1 John chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 6. Um, we're going to finish out the chapter. It, 
at first it seems like John kind of bounces around a little bit on topics, and, and he, he kind of does. But I would just remind you that throughout all of this, though, is this core idea on the centrality of Jesus, right? I mean, it's different topics, but it all comes back to Jesus. Who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? You know, what, what does that look like? And so as we're working through this and finishing out this book, remember just this, this central idea of Jesus. And John begins this section, uh, really, I guess actually really almost starting in verse 9. Um, it it kind of, it really begins with verse 6, but, but we're going to start in verse 9. And the whole thing is around testimony. And, and the testimony that Jesus was, is the Son of God. Um, and, and we're going to work through that. I'm going to start in verse 9. Look to see just how much John uses this word testimony. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Last week we looked um, at verses um, 6 through 8, and just a quick review, but it talks about the water and the blood um, really giving, giving testimony, um, or that they testify. The, um, we believe that the water refers to the water baptism that took place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and that the blood refers to his crucifixion at the end of his ministry. At one point, Jesus refers to his crucifixion as a baptism of suffering, and so really we have baptism serving as bookends of the, the ministry of Jesus, uh, one by water and then one of suffering. Um, but then, but then John moves on, and he says, he's basically telling us, like, look, if, if you're willing to receive the testimony of men, which we do all the time in all kinds of different realms, if you're willing to receive that and believe it, like, how much greater the testimony of God? I mean, just on news, right? Like, everyone kind of has their, anymore, kind of their favorite news agency, and they believe testimony from that news agency, you know, or, or that that news reporter or that social media site, right? Or even, like, you know, there's, like, the one friend you really believe at coffee and his testimony, but the other guy, like, we're going to triple-check him when we get home, you know, for whatever reason. But we routinely believe the testimony of men, how much greater the, the testimony of God. Verse 10 is interesting. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. God has told the world that Jesus Christ is his son. But when man rejects that testimony, in doing so, we really call God a liar. Which is a pretty scary thing when you think about it, right? Like, I would not want to stand face to face with God and be like, liar, liar, pants on fire. You know, like, I don't think that's going to fly well. But at the same time, like, as scary as that is for the unbeliever, there's actually incredible comfort for the believer in that, right? Because the same God who gives testimony that Jesus is the Son also gives testimony that we have eternal life through Jesus Christ. Verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
That which should have terrified you or does terrify you as a non-believer actually now provides incredible comfort as a believer. Because here's the thing. Our, our only assurance that heaven is good and wonderful and that there is some kind of afterlife and that the eternal and that it's real and that it's true and it's waiting for us is the testimony of God, right, given to us through his scripture. So if God can't be believed, like, we got some pretty, pretty big questions and pretty big problems to, to address, right? If God is honest and God is true, then not only is Jesus true, but heaven and eternity is true as well. Verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, right? So here we just have the centrality of Jesus working all through that, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. This is one of the verses that that challenges me a, a fair bit, right? And, and Matthew actually kind of says a similar, or Jesus says a similar thing. Matthew 21, 22, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it if you have faith. And so you, you just kind of read that quick and fast, and the assumption is, well, you know, this is some kind of blank check where whatever you want, you know, you just got to get the prayer formula down right, and it's yours, Right? And, but, it, but life doesn't seem to work like that, right? Like, you, you don't have to try that very long to be like, hey, this, this isn't working the way I thought, right? Like, as a blank check, this, this doesn't seem to be, to be working. I'm very confident that I have eternal life. I'm very confident that, that God hears my prayers. But the whole kind of ask for and, and receive it, um, I've struggled with that one. And, and still kind of working through that one. James kind of tempers it, though, a little bit. Um, James chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 2 and then 3, he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Okay, that kind of aligns with, with what we just read. But he continues, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So this whole idea, it's, it's not about me. It's not about what I want, and it's not about satisfying my pleasures, right? This is about something, something bigger. And this is where I, I come back to um, kind of my favorite definition of prayer. I've shared this with you before. Uh, some of you have heard this, but this has just been so helpful for me in understanding prayer and verses like this, and, and how do you understand them, and then certainly how do you apply them. Um, and I don't remember where I, I first heard this or the wording on it, but this idea that prayer is not getting man's way in heaven, prayer is getting God's way on earth. And for me personally, that's helped me so much in understanding this. Um, because it, with verses like this, it looks like, well, I can just ask for whatever I want, and then it's mine, right? And so prayer is me just going to God, and if I annoy him enough, then I will get the things that I want. Right? And so that's that's man trying to get his way in heaven. But 
what if I'm trying to get God's way on earth, right? Because then I begin with, what does God want? What is his heart for here and for the people and, and for the nations? What does God want to see happen? And then through prayer and action, I work to fulfill that, you know, in my circles of influence and here on earth. So at, at the end of the day, I just come, keep coming back. Prayer is not getting man's way in heaven. Prayer is getting God's way on earth. We're moving fast. Hang with me. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. When I first read that, uh, you know, Jesus makes reference to this, some unforgivable sin, which, I mean, scholars actually believe is simply rejecting Jesus and, and the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But, but when I read that, like, my mind went back to unforgivable sin. I was like, oh, no, like, is there some sin where as a believer and I commit this sin and then, you know, I have this eternal separation from God. And it was, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, kind of scary and dark and nervous couple of the commentaries, it was interesting, they actually referenced Ananias and Sapphira. And, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with that story. Book of Acts, chapter 5, early church. Things are really kind of taken off. It's pretty great. Lots of great and wonderful things. And people are living very generously. And this couple sell some land, um, which is fine. And then they give some of the money to the church, which is also just fine. But the problem is, is that they lie about it. Probably because they wanted, you know, a little bit of fame or you know, the popularity. So they lie to the church, and they say, here's all the money, and, but they secretly kept some back for themselves. Well, as a result of that, the Holy Spirit kills both of them on the spot, which to me seems a bit harsh. I'm not sure, but I mean, I guess God can, can do what he wants. But in that, you had a sin that led to a physical death. It's really actually a rather awkward story to talk about, <laughs> you know, because we just, we don't talk about that a whole lot, and, and yeah. But then, if, on top of that, you also have Paul writing in 1 Corinthians almost a similar thing. And in chapter 11, he's talking about communion. And he talks about, Whoever therefore eats bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who, drinks and, who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So there's a pretty big caution in there. But then verse 30. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now, that's kind of awkward, a little startling. In, in 1 John, he's probably not talking about a spiritual death. He's probably referencing some kind of physical death. And we don't know much beyond that we're just left with speculation and kind of these other peculiar examples maybe the sin just has a lot of bad health effects and it can kill you and there's that uh, or maybe it is something that that god simply takes you home early not sure but again we we just kind of have these these peculiar examples um, so it's probably not a a, a a spiritual death but rather a physical death 
As fascinating, as interesting, and as much as we, we could ponder that, though, that's actually not the core of this paragraph, the core idea. The core idea of this paragraph is actually at the very beginning, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. The core idea is simply actually to pray for one another and understanding the consequences that can happen when we don't really pray for one another, right? I mean, this is a close community. A lot of you guys are family. You, you interact all the time. You see things. Maybe you suspect things. Pray for one another. That's the encouragement in this passage. John is just giving us a heads up that, that some sin can have pretty drastic consequences. But pray for one another. And if you see something, if you suspect something, start with praying for that individual. I mean, we just read in the paragraph below, or in the paragraph before, that if your prayer, I mean, God loves to, to answer prayer and whatever we can ask for, you know, if it's in alignment with his will, he answers that. Verse 18 and 19. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Just a couple thoughts on that. He was born of God, protects him. The evil one does not touch him. Um, if you've been in Christian circles uh, long enough, uh, then you, you've probably heard kind of some uh, phrases that will get repeated in prayer time, kind of these little cutesy poetic phrases. And they sound really nice, but when you stop to think about them, you're like, I have no idea what that means, right? Like, uh, long ago, I stopped praying, Lord, bless this food to our bodies, just because I didn't know what I was asking for, really. Like, fewer calories, more calories, like, more nutritious. Like, I actually don't know what I'm asking for when I say, bless this food to my body. And then sometimes, if we're really poetic, we'll say, um, bless this food to our body and our bodies to your service. And again, I'm like, I don't really know what I— so I gave up on that one until one of you can explain to me what that means, right? Um, or bless the hands that have prepared this. I'm like, what about the elbows? Like, I mean, we're just—hand seems—can we just thank God for the person who made it? I don't know. It seems odd. One of the other ones that can seem a little bit quirky, Lord, we pray a hedge of protection around this person. But that one makes sense because that one is actually from Scripture, book of Job, God and Satan are having this conversation on whether or not Job would turn from God if he experiences hardships. And Satan is appearing before God, basically asking for permission to inflict hardships on Job. And God gives Satan permission, but it's very incremental, right? Like first, you know, kind of finances, then family, then health. And, and so they kind of work through this. But Satan makes, so Satan makes this comment, uh, Job 1 verse 10, and this is Satan talking, have you not put a hedge around him? That's where we get the phrase, hedge of protection. Have you not put a hedge around him and around his house, house and all that he has on, on every side? So that aligns with 1 John 5 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. There's a lot, and I do mean a lot, um, about the spiritual realm that I just, I don't understand, and I don't think any of us are going to understand this side of heaven, but I'm pretty confident of a couple things. 
based on these verses is that if you're a Christian, right, if the Holy Spirit lives within you, um, if you're leading a righteous life, if, if you're avoiding sin, if you're confessing sin, if you're not giving the enemy a foothold as we read about it in, in Ephesians, then it appears that Satan can't touch you unless God gives him permission. Now, sin is still in the world, and so we're still going to suffer disease and sickness and tribulations and trials and persecution and that kind of thing. But somehow, in some way, in, in that spiritual realm, Satan can't touch you. Now, if you're not a Christian, don't have the Holy Spirit. If you're engaging in habitual sins, particularly sexual sins, um, if you are knowingly, unknowingly have given Satan a foothold in your life, that makes you vulnerable. And, and again, the fullness of how that works, I'm not sure, other than just say you're vulnerable to experiencing a lot of torment by the enemy. Verse 19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. First time I even heard that verse, right? Like, I had been a Christian most of my life. I, I'm in my mid-20s, and we're doing some training on, like, spiritual authority and spiritual warfare, that kind of stuff. And I read that, and it's like the first time I ever read it. I was shocked, like totally shocked. Like, that's a worldview changer right there. I was like, time out, right? Because I, well, you know, I assumed, well, you know, just God's in control, and everything's just kind of a, a happy place. And there is some dude named Satan, but I don't know. He's not really an issue. He lives elsewhere, or that kind of thing, right? There's, um, I don't know, I guess you would call it a theory, or an idea, or a... A speculation. Um, I've never found like one verse or one passage that says all of this really succinctly. I found a number of verses that seem to support it, and I haven't yet found any verses that contradict it. So there's that as kind of a, a precursor to this. But here, here's kind of the idea. Is that when Adam and Eve sinned, not only did they allow um, sin to enter the world, but in some capacity they actually surrendered some level or some kind of authority to Satan. When Christ came, he died on the cross, he reclaimed that authority, and he gave some of it to his church. Now, Satan still has power, but that authority has been reclaimed by Christ here on earth, and he's given some of that to his church. That is why in a verse like, and power and authority are two different words, and so it's important to keep an eye on it when you're reading, because in this verse, it doesn't say Satan has authority. It says he has power. And so that's, that's the distinction that is, that is going on here. If that is true, okay, if that idea is true, it's kind of fascinating. One, I mean, we have to admit that Satan has power, and a lot of it, and that most of the world still follows him, right? Spiritually, spiritually, this world is probably far more dangerous than you and I realize. We, we don't realize just kind of the amount of, of evil that we just swim in every day. But on the flip side, as a child of God, if God has entrusted to you authority to deal with the enemy in, in, in certain ways, and this authority vested in you, it actually means that you're far more dangerous to Satan's kingdom than you realize. Verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we know him who is true and we are in him who is in true, uh, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 
the last sentence seems a bit odd, right? Like we're talking about Jesus and then kind of out of left field, like we got that, like, that was a little bit random, like, couldn't you have placed that somewhere else more appropriately? Those last couple verses are just bringing us back to this idea on the centrality of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, idols for them was very much a literal thing, you know, like people just went down and worshiped idols. Honestly, idols is a literal thing for us too. It just tends to get a little bit more disguised. But just this idea that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus, right? Jesus came to earth. Jesus gives us understanding. Jesus is God. In Jesus, we find eternal life. And don't let anything distract you from that. Don't let yourself or keep yourself from idols. Don't let anything distract you from the centrality of Jesus Christ in your life. All about Jesus. First John doesn't get a whole lot of publicity. Um, we, we don't really talk about it a whole lot, which is too bad. Uh, but in this sermon series, one of the things that I have come to realize is just how much we need First John in our life, right? Far more than we realize. Um, different books will have different strong points, right? Identity in Christ, Ephesians, great one. Uh, suffering, First Peter, great one. Um, the life of Jesus, right? We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of them written to kind of different audience, different contexts, emphasizing different things. Early church, Holy Spirit, the book of Acts, right? First John is great for new Christians because it talks a lot about the love of the Father. Fantastic that way. All kinds of great stuff. But it's also great for the seasoned Christian. Dealing with false teachings, discerning truth from lies, light from darkness, understanding spiritual realities. It's almost like you should read 1 John first and last. Right? Like if someone is new to the faith, you start with 1 John and then you read the rest of the New Testament and then you end with 1 John again. Just layers and layers of truth and application. God is a witness, trusting God, prayer, receiving what we pray for, a sin that, that leads to death, but praying for those that struggle with sin, spiritual protection, because in Jesus, we are protected. The whole world is under the control of the enemy, but in Jesus, we're protected. And Jesus Christ as the truth. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, uh, or, or talked about, there, there's only kind of two um, days isn't the right, right word. I forget the word he used. But kind of only two days that you should worry about because they're the only two things that you really have any influence over. And that's today and eternity. You can't do anything about tomorrow. Tomorrow's done. You can't do anything about, I'm sorry, you can't do anything about yesterday. Yesterday's done. And you can't do anything about tomorrow because it's not here yet, right? So yesterday, tomorrow, don't worry about them. You can't do anything about those. But you can do something about today. But in doing something about today, we actually impact eternity. So those are the, really the only two things you have to worry about. Today and eternity. But as you impact today, you impact eternity. First John, great stuff. How do we live for today? And in doing so, how do we impact eternity? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this loaded book um, of truth. God, I pray that for each person here that they would remember what it is that they need to remember for today and for eternity, Lord. And we are trusting, Lord, that tomorrow you will give us what we need for tomorrow. God, thank you for your Holy Spirit that leads and guides and uh, inspires and convicts and corrects. And thank you for the word of your truth, that, that it can be trusted. But ultimately, Lord, thank you that it all brings us back to you. 
to personal relationship with Jesus Christ, what that looks like to live that, experience that, and share that with others. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.